Chapter Forty of the Forgery by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Forty. It was after dinner. The summer light had faded from the evening sky, yet there were roses in the west and a bright star following, like a fair handmaid, upon Cynthia's footsteps through the sky. The curtains were not drawn, and the purple hue of the past day spread through the dining-room, mingling with the more powerful light of the lamps, like calm, sad memories tempering present joys. The party of Milford Castle consisted, as the reader knows, of ten persons, and they were still seated round the table. Lady Anne was at one end, her brother had assumed the other. The dessert, such as it was at that season of the year, was still before them. The excellent wine had once gone round. The commonplace chat of the dinner-table had gradually subsided, and one of those fits of silence which very often indicate expectation had fallen upon the whole party. The one who was the most eager for the promised explanation was Sir Harry Henderson, who said, after the silence had continued for perhaps half a minute. "'You promised us a history, my lord, or perhaps even I might call it a romance, for certainly it savours of the romantic.' "'It does indeed,' answered Henry. "'But, like many another romantic thing, it is very true. I think, however, although with my dear sister and myself some painful memories may arise, and some gloomy thoughts may be awakened.' it will be better to read you the letter of him who knew the whole circumstances, from being the principal actor in them, rather than give you my own version of the details. I will only premise that from this letter Lady Anne first learned that she had ever had a brother. The demonstrable proofs were found in the cabinet, which, as you have heard, was opened by her in the presence of Mr. Hargrave. Thus saying, he rose and rang the bell ordering when the servant appeared that a green box of paper should be brought him out of his room when it had been procured he opened it and took out a letter from the top containing several closely written pages and having looked at it for a moment he said after the death of my father the late earl of milford this letter was delivered by his executors to his daughter lady anne whom he then believed to be his only surviving child it contained the key of the cabinet to which you have all heard allusion made, and it bears, marked upon the back, to be opened by my daughter, Lady Anne, when she shall arrive at the age of one and twenty years, provided it should please heaven that she should survive me. The letter then proceeds as follows. My dearest child, you have remarked that my health has been gradually failing for some years. The medical men attribute this decay to an accident I met with, which you well remember. I myself connected with a much more painful event, of which they know nothing. They cannot, therefore, by any drugs, remedy the disease. I am now about to unburden my whole heart, for the first time in my life, to you, for I feel that I am soon about to be called hence, and the most improbable events might occur, which would render the secret of my early life important both to yourself and others, I know you, my dearest child, well, thoroughly, entirely, and I can trust implicitly both to your heart and to your understanding. You are too dutiful and affectionate a child to blame your father severely, even if you find he has committed some errors, or to scorn his injunctions, even if you cannot always approve his conduct. Neither will I blame my own parent, 
although we did not live on those terms of tender confidence in which you and i have always dwelt together but it is necessary that i should speak of his character to account for if not to justify my own actions let me tell you then my early history i was my father's second son and never was loved as my elder brother was that brother was kind and good and worthy of all affection but even to him my father was usually stern and often even violent to me my father's demeanour was exceedingly harsh and imperious instant obedience to his slightest word was exacted in all things as was perhaps right and due but no command ever came unaccompanied by a threat and no threat ever remained unfulfilled if the command was even by mistake disobeyed it seemed as if he wished to make fear subside both affection and a sense of duty and he succeeded but too well i learned to dread him and even after my poor brother's death that sad lesson was not forgotten as his heir i was furnished with ample means and received a very good education but before my brother's death i had been placed at a somewhat inferior school where i formed a very close intimacy with a boy of the name of Haley. you have often seen him as a man and must recollect him he was weak timid and somewhat cowardly but i was in the custom of defending him from the attacks of older and stronger boys and we naturally learn to love what we protect when i afterwards went to eton stephen Haley followed me thither and our friendship continued unabated even when i was sent on a tour through europe with a tutor i regularly corresponded with Haley, my new rank as lord mellant making not the least change to our intimacy though he had now become a clerk in a great merchant's house it was not long after my return and while i was still a student at oxford that an event occurred the consequences of which have chequered my golden fate with shades unalterably dark one day in a country village where i had gone to study more quietly for my degree than i could do elsewhere i saw a girl of the most surpassing beauty that can be conceived the first meeting was merely accidental but the second was designed for i eagerly inquired who she was and finding that her father was a wealthy and honest farmer of the name of graves i contrived to introduce myself to him as a person wishing to purchase a horse i soon made myself intimate in his family and the admiration i had conceived for his daughter ripened into the warmest and truest love she was as gentle and kind as good and as graceful as she was beautiful and even had such a thing been possible my dearest anne which it was not i would not have misled her for the world but my position was very difficult i knew my father's proud spirit and highly aristocratic feelings and that his consent to my marriage with a farmer's daughter was quite out of all hope but i loved her and she loved me and i told her all my difficulties she and she alone knew who i was for i had given myself out as a merchant and the son of a merchant to escape visits and civilities which might be burdensome we hesitated we doubted long but at length passion triumphed over prudence and she was persuaded to fly with me and unite her fate with mine we were married in secret and passed nearly a year in the fondest affection all that she exacted was permission to write to her father to assure him that she was a wife 
when the time approached however at which she was to give birth to a child fears assailed her and remorse for having left her parents house she made me promise that if real danger occurred i would send for him with all speed that she might receive his pardon and his blessing before she died danger did come my child and death but she had the satisfaction she sought her father and her husband were with her at the last hour and she died forgiven leaving me with a poor helpless infant the old man fled from the cottage almost in a state of madness and my own mind was so troubled that for three days i forgot all the dangers of my situation those dangers were many as i will soon explain to you and to avoid them i was obliged to leave that cottage with the child as soon as the funeral was over to consign the poor infant to the charge of a nurse and to appear in the gay world of london with a calm face and none of the external signs of that morning which was sincerely in my heart i must now go back to tell some other events which had occurred like most young men of my day i had been somewhat extravagant and had lived a good deal beyond the income which my father allowed me my debts amounted to between nine and ten thousand pounds when i first met with poor mary graves my creditors were importunate i had not the means of paying them and about seven months after my marriage one of them applied to my father he sent for me and sternly demanded that i should give him an account of everything i owed i did so and to my surprise i found him much less enraged than i could have imagined but it soon appeared that he had a project in his head which would compel me to disobey and offend him he asked me if i had ever seen a young lady whom he named in short your own dear mother i told him i had not but that i had always heard her highly spoken of he then informed me that he was acquainted with her father and that as she was an only child and heiress of considerable wealth he had proposed to him a marriage between her and me your maternal grandfather had consented upon the condition that the marriage should be agreeable to ourselves and my father now said on condition of your marrying this young lady i will at once pay your debts and settle a larger income upon you i cannot minutely describe the scene that ensued of course i was obliged to refuse and i did so decidedly and at once there was sufficient to excite great wrath but my father smothered it in a degree and requested me at least to see the young lady before i decided i endeavoured as humbly as i could to represent to him that by pursuing such a course and then refusing to marry her especially after what had taken place between him and her father i should be grossly wronging and insulting her but now the storm broke forth he told me that a rumour had reached him that i was either keeping or had married some low woman that he had refused to believe such an assertion but that my conduct gave such strong confirmation to the report that he would take means to ascertain the fact and if he found i had been guilty of so base a dereliction of my duty to him and of my rank and station in society he would cast me off for ever would bequeath every farthing of the property which he could alienate and that was nearly the whole to strangers and leave me what he justly called the most miserable of wretches a titled beggar he would not hear me utter a word but drove me forth from his presence to seek comfort with my poor wife from whom i was obliged to conceal the sorrows which my marriage with her had brought upon me thus matters continued till her death knowing that i was watched 
and obliged to have recourse to a thousand stratagems to conceal my movements. Even after the poor girl's death, I knew my father too well to doubt that, if he discovered I had a son by such a marriage, he would carry his threat into execution, and in my difficulty and distress I applied to my friend Haley, made him my confidant, and induced him to promise that he would acknowledge the child as his own, and superintend his education, till such time as I should be enabled publicly to declare my marriage. Some months after, I accidentally met with your mother in society, found her beautiful, amiable, and in every respect agreeable to me, and I took means to make myself agreeable to her. She was quite unconscious of what had previously taken place, and gave such encouragement as no well-educated woman would afford to a man whom she would afterwards reject. Her father, however, who was well aware of the whole, at first treated me very coldly, but as soon as I had made up my mind to offer her my hand, I thought it right to have an explanation with him, and I pointed out to him that I had acted honourably towards his daughter in refusing to be introduced to her with such views, unless I were positively determined to carry them out. I soon overcame all his prejudices. He became attached to me. His daughter accepted my offered hand, and I wrote to my father, whom I had not seen for some months, hoping that my obedience, tardy as it was, would be accepted. He was not fond of writing, and he sent for me to come to him. When I went, my treatment was that which might have been shown towards a very lowly dependent. He told me that, if I wished to show myself dutiful, my submission came too late, that now I might marry your mother, or not, as I pleased, that he approved of the match, but did not require it, and that, although he would allow me an income equal to my station and expectations, he would settle nothing upon me. He added in a low but very menacing tone, I have my doubts, young man, I have my doubts, and if I ever find that you have degraded your name or rank, I will leave you without one penny of which I can deprive you. I was obliged to bear these tidings to my future father-in-law, but, with a certain portion of ambition, he was a kind-hearted and affectionate man. He knew that his daughter loved me, he felt confident from all he had seen that I loved her, and his consent to our marriage was given, unwillingly indeed, for he was sufficiently wealthy to look high for a match for his daughter, and to desire a settlement proportionate to her fortune. However, all objections were waived, and we were married. My allowance from my father was liberal, her fortune was large, and eight months after it was trebled by the death of her father. All that I possessed, however, and all that I should ever possess, except a very small portion, depended upon the Earl's never discovering that I had contracted a previous marriage, and had had a son by a plebeian wife. My dear boy, therefore, remained under the care of Mr. Haley, was brought home by him while yet almost an infant, acknowledged as his son, educated with great care, and displayed in person and mind, in character and demeanour. "'But I need not read all that,' said Henry. "'After a few commendations on my boyhood, the letter goes on thus. "'You have seen him often, my dear Anne. "'You know him well, for I brought him up with you, almost as a brother, "'intending to tell you that he actually was so, "'before you reached the age of womanhood. "'I loved him, oh, how dearly and how well, "'and you loved him too, I am sure, 
with that fraternal love which was exactly what I desired. No act, no thought of his ever gave me a moment's pain, and without wishing for my own father's death, I longed to be able to tell you and your mother that this boy was my son. At length I was suddenly summoned away to Belford to attend upon my father, who had been seized with severe illness. I could have wished to remain in London or in its neighbourhood, for I knew that the affairs of Mr. Haley were getting into a sad disorder. I had already supplied him, more than once, with considerable sums of money, beyond the expenses of my dear boy's education and maintenance, and a new demand had been made upon my purse, accompanied by a vague and timid threat. However, I was obliged to set out. My father died a week or two after, and I proceeded from Milford Castle to Carmarthen, to consign his remains to the family vault on my way back my carriage was overturned at the bridge at blank and i was taken up insensible with concussion of the brain i remained ill for several weeks and my recovery was slow and difficult for a long time the medical men would not suffer me to read or write at all but at length one morning after i had been permitted to go out once or twice i took up the newspaper on the breakfast table and was struck with horror and dismay on reading a paragraph headed the late forgery i cannot dwell on the particulars even now my dear child suffice it to say that the paragraph showed me that my son your dear brother had been accused of forgery to a large amount that he had fled from the country after having been traced down to northumberland and thence to Carmarthen, in search of me it seems and that the officer who had followed him to ancona had there by the monks been shown a dead body which they solemnly declared to be his my feelings were almost those of a madman i knew my boy was not guilty i saw it all in a moment that haley a bankrupt gambler as he had proved had committed the forgery and had induced the boy who thought him his father to fly in order to screen his supposed parent at the same time a vague wild hope which haunts me yet that my child might still be alive, that the officer might have been deceived by a pious fraud of the monks, took possession of my mind and made me act upon the moment with a degree of fierceness and resolution which perhaps I might not have had the courage to display if I had paused to deliberate. I sent for the man Haley with a threat that if he did not come I would fetch him, and when he appeared before me all pale and trembling, I accused him at once of what he had done, as if I had a revelation of the whole facts. He was always a coward, and in his attempts to deny and equivocate, he betrayed himself. But I wrung the whole from him, as if I had taken his false heart in my hand and crushed out the only drops of truth it contained. I told him that if he did not instantly, and at once, confess the whole, I would carry him from my house to the office of the magistrate that I would prove from his own letters to me that he was a bankrupt and a beggar, but a few days before the forgery was committed, that I would make him account for the possession of every penny which he had expended since, and leave the keen hounds of justice to follow out the scent. He did at length confess the whole, and put it down in writing, signing it in my presence and that of Alciger, the butler, upon the condition that I would not reveal the facts till after his death, unless my boy ever appeared in England again. My hopes of such being the case have daily decreased. 
but they linger still. I have caused many inquiries to be made, and secret investigations to be carried on, but the only fact I have been able to discover, which keeps expectation alive, is that there were two lads, nearly of the same age, in the convent, at the time my poor boy was supposed to have died in Ancona. In case he should appear again, before you arrive at the age of one and twenty, I have besought my dear old friend, Charles Hargrave, of Detch and Grieve, near Belford, to watch carefully the events that take place in London, and if Henry should come back, to desire you to open this letter at once. The confession of Haley, with several other papers concerning my private marriage, and the boy's birth and education, are in an ebony cabinet in my dressing-room at Milford Castle. It is sealed up with an order written upon it, to the effect that it is only to be opened by yourself after you have reached the age of one and twenty. And now, my dear child, farewell. These lines will not meet your eyes till your father's are closed. I know I have no need to exhort you to do justice to your brother, if ever you should find him, and if you should not, to clear his memory after Mr. Haley's death. Your mother's ample fortune will be sufficient provision for you, and the estates of the family will descend to you, without being specially mentioned in my will. But remember that you hold them in trust for him, if ever he should reappear. Should such be the case, I trust that the affection which existed between you and him, as boy and girl, may be a blessing to you both in more mature years. And now that heaven may protect you, and send you a happier fate than mine, is the sincerest prayer of your father, Milford. Henry's voice faltered as he read the latter sentences of his father's letter to his sister, and there were tears in Lady Anne's bright eyes, but those tears did not run over till old Mr. Hargrave laid his hand upon hers, saying, "'Well and nobly, my dear child, have you fulfilled your excellent father's last behest, and justified his judgment both of head and heart.' "'And I am a proud man,' said Mr. Winkworth, looking at her through his spectacles, which he had been wiping more than once, for some reason or another. For I shall one day call her child, who has so brightly performed her duty to a dead father and a living brother. "'Hush, hush, hush!' exclaimed Lady Anne, starting up. "'You will drive me away. Did you not promise, most faithless of Indians? You are as bad as the man in the fairy tale.' "'And as ugly,' replied Mr. Winkworth, laughing. "'But I fear, dear lady, I shall never find a kind girl to restore me to my pristine form again, "'though if there be a sorceress upon earth who could do it, she were Anne Mellant. "'Pray use your interest with her for me, my dear lord, "'for I would fain have youth and beauty back, "'as they appeared before they had been taken away by that fell enchanter. "'Time. "'And here are two people in the room, my old acquaintance Hargrave, and my dear sister, Lady Fleetwood, who can tell you that I was a very good-looking fellow nine-and-twenty years ago, when I was called Charles Marston. "'Charles Marston!' exclaimed Lady Fleetwood, almost with a scream. "'You, Charles Marston!' "'Yes, my dear Meg,' replied Mr. Winkworth, "'even your poor brother-in-law.' "'But, dear me!' cried Lady Fleetwood. "'Scriven told me you were a bankrupt.' "'And Charles says you are very rich.' "'Both, Meg, both,' replied Mr. Winkworth. "'There Scriven told truth, and Charles, too. "'Do you not know that I never did things like other men? 
and when i was coming from india as there were some dear friends who owed me a couple of lacs and were too gentlemanly to pay an old friend i made myself a bankrupt that the task of suing them might fall upon my assignees i had the hint by the way from grange the pastry cook who made himself a bankrupt every year just to call in his accounts but i rather think i am capable of paying a hundred shillings in the pound and now all i have to say is and i say it deliberately before witnesses if lady anne mellant will condescend to take up with a merchant and does not object to old age and is very fond of a yellowish skin and a lean person i am ready to marry her as soon as this wound in my shoulder is quite well and i will settle a quarter of a million upon her on her wedding-day whether she marries me or well well my dear i won't so complete was the surprise of all present except mr hargrave and lady anne that there was a dead silence for half a minute and then lady fleetwood whose wit was always fixed upon something collateral asked aloud what a lax a burst of laughter followed and perhaps it was the best way of ending the explanation lady anne made good her retreat as fast as possible and after the gentlemen were left together henry laid before mr hargrave and the rest all the papers which went to prove his title lord milford's account of his private marriage in a more detailed form than he had given it to his daughter the documents with which he had been furnished by the monks at ancona to prove that he was henry hayley notwithstanding his long assumption of the name of middleton some letters upon the subject from don balthasar de thanmorsa and last the certificate of marriage of charles melland and mary graves and that of his own birth for these latter papers he said i am indebted to the activity and intelligence of that worthy man joshua brown and by your permission gentlemen i will have him in and thank him in your presence for all he has done for me the peddler was soon introduced and in graceful terms the young nobleman expressed his gratitude making him sit down beside him there is a lady said henry who longs much to thank you mr brown and to-morrow before breakfast you must let me introduce you to her will you take a glass of wine to drink her health willingly my lord replied the peddler for my lord you are but yet i think you will find a little hitch somewhere that will want making smooth in good truth my dear young friend he is right said mr hargrave who had been looking carefully over the papers here is every proof that you passed as henry hayley every proof that milford was privately married and had a son every proof that he believed you to be that son and that hayley told him so but no legal proof whatever that the boy who was given to the care of the nurse by your poor father was the same that mr hayley brought home and acknowledged as his own i've got it here sir said the peddler producing an old pocket-book i told the young lord that he'd want more of my help so between the time when i last saw him and the day i went to listen at lady fleetwood's i ran down to the part of the country where they were married for i recollected quite well having seen a pretty babby about that time at mrs goldie's the grocer's widow's with black ribbons upon its little white frock and i knew it was a nurse child for she had none of her own never had she's alive to this day and there is her certificate that the child she delivered to stephen hayley esquire was the child of charles mellant and mary graves 
She has got, moreover, the order, in Charles Mellon's own hand, to deliver the child to Mr. Haley, and Mr. Haley's acknowledgment that he had received it. She says, too, that with the child she gave him a gold box, the top of which unscrews, and in it she put a paper, like a careful old body as she is, with all the marks the child had upon it, such as moulds and spots and such like, which most of us have, more or less. "'I've got the box,' cried Mr. Winkworth, alias Marston, who had broken off a conversation with his son to listen. "'I owe that to the care of my little man, Jim. It was found in the goods and chattels of poor Miss Haley, but there is amongst her papers a memorandum, written in one of her saner moods, stating that the box was brought with the clothes of her brother's son, Henry Haley, when he first came home from the place where he was nursed, and that she always preserved it carefully, in the hope that she might sometime bear the news of the poor child's mother, who must have been of some rank, as there is a coronet engraved upon the box. "'Bravo! Bravo!' said Mr. Hargrave. "'The only link wanting in the chain seems to be supplied. "'And now I think we shall do without any further question.' And so think I, dear reader, too. End of chapter 40 End of The Forgery or Best Intentions by G. P. R. James